Records, no matter how high, mighty and commendable they are, are made to be broken. And after the Eiffel Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton took one step closer to breaking one of F1's biggest. Let's get started. Sebastian Vettel's got it to Max Verstappen. And under breaking, Leclerc has gone into the barriers at the penultimate turn. Perez ahead of Stroll, ahead of Ricardo behind. Oh, it's a tight finish. It's a photo finish. Adding another championship to his collection. It's Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. Tom, as no, moderator, if you like, would you like mm-hmm. to explain where the lovely Liv is this fine evening? Yes, well, unfortunately, Liv, in her own words, actually forgot we were recording tonight. Tonight is Tuesday. And she is currently with her grandparents. And to be fair, can't really blame her. So when she listens to this back, she can be all embarrassed. She'll get, I know what she'll do. She'll go all red. And be like, you guys. <laughs> you guys. That's exactly what she'll You guys. Anyway, so Liv, I hope you're well. And in the words of Liv, Angus, you go. So give you all a little bit of a sort of a, well, a brief history about the F1 wins, wins record before talking about the I'd say the, the pure enormity of the achievement that Lewis Hamilton has managed in his Formula One career in terms of his wins. But first of all, of course, for a very long time, the F1 wins record has been held by Michael Schumacher. Uh, in fact, since 2001, when he won his 52nd Grand Prix, uh, overtaking the great Alain Prost, uh, the four time world champion himself. Schumacher proceeded to, over the next five, the remaining five years of his first stint in F1, extend the record to 91 race victories. Many in, F, in Formula One at the time thought that that record would never be got close to, let alone broken. But on Sunday at the Eiffel Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton equaled the record with his 91st win. Lewis Hamilton did it in 261 races, which happens to be 15 races more than Michael Schumacher took to reach that mark. But in any regard, both incredible achievements to get to the get to that mark at all, let alone in that amount of races. Hamilton has seen a large amount of his wins come in the last six or seven years since the start of the hybrid era. To put it in perspective, he took 22 wins in his first 130 Grand Prix, then proceeded to take 69 in his next 131 Grand Prix, which is staggering, really. Any driver winning over 50% of the races in a season is a fantastic achievement, but managing to sustain that 50% win rate across, what, seven seasons almost? Like, completely remarkable, in my opinion. Yes, he's had the car advantage, but still, you've got to be able to deliver week in, week out on different circuits with different setups, and that is what is quite incredible about it. In terms of the different circuits, across his career, he's won at 26 different Grand Prix, and his win at the Nürburgring, on Sunday was his second win at the circuit, one of 27 that he has won at, which are both, so the number of different Grand Prix he's won at and the number of different circuits are both records. He's won his uh, most amount of races at the Hungarian Grand Prix with eight wins there in 14 attempts. He's also won seven races in both Canada and also at his home Grand Prix at Silverstone. Another fact, which is, I think, perhaps a great show of his longevity as well. He's the only driver in Formula One history to have won at least one race in every season he's competed in. That includes his rookie season, where, of course, he won four races, despite being new to the sport and despite being up against uh, Fernando Alonso as a teammate. Not even the great drivers like Michael Schumacher, Ayrton Senna, Alain Prost were able to win at least one race in every season they competed in. So it shows, even though Lewis Hamilton's had superior machinery for a lot of years, of course, you think of his championship winning McLaren, 
If you think of the vast array of Mercedes he's had to drive the last few years, it's got to, you've got to bear in mind he's also won in poor quality cars. The 2009 McLaren that he raced started off as, at best, probably the seventh fastest car. Admittedly, throughout the season, it had a transformation into an upper midfield car. But still, he managed to pull out two wins in that car and take various pole positions. That would be the equivalent right now of, let's say, a racing point or a Renault winning a race, which you could not foresee happening at the moment. So it's, I'd say showing Hamilton's ability to drag the most out of even a poor car. Even his first Mercedes car in 2013, it was a good qualifying car. It took many pole positions, but it was a poor race car, which used to eat up its tyres uh, on race day. And he still managed to take a victory on the, in that car. So showing his longevity and his ability to win in even subpar machinery. His victory, as I said, was his 91st, equaling Michael Schumacher's record. And there was an extremely, I thought, one of the, it was an all-round good vibes weekend at the Nürburgring with lots of good stories to come out of it. One of the, the best was how Mick Schumacher came up to Hamilton in his post-race interview and presented Hamilton with an original helmet which belonged to Mick's father from the 2012 season um, as a recognition of the record being matched uh, after all these years. It was very similar. It reminded me of a, it was a very touching moment as well at Canada in 2017 when the, that was the race where Hamilton matched Ayrton Senna's achievement of 65 pole positions, with Senna, of course, being uh, a great hero for Hamilton. And at that race, a member of Ayrton Senna's family presented Hamilton with a original Ayrton Senna helmet from the, the early 1990s. And it was really great. it was similar to that at this weekend with Michael Schumacher, of course, who could not be there, sadly still recovering from his skiing accident many years ago. But it was lovely to see his son, Mick, who of course is the current F2 Championship leader, be able to be there at the race to present Hamilton with the helmet. A really touching gesture, and you could see it meant a lot to Hamilton, because whilst Senna is probably his main hero, Michael Schumacher as well would be an inspiration to any young, budding Formula 1 driver like Hamilton was when he started his career. Um, really, put, really put a smile on people's faces, especially on mine. Um, and yeah, so Hamilton's equaled the record. It's, I'd say, inevitable. I mean, it's, it looks one of the most inevitable things of a very unpredictable 2020 that Hamilton will break the record and go on to 92 race victories. The question now is where on earth could he leave that record? Um, no Formula 1 driver has ever made it to 100 Grand Prix victories. That is definitely within reach now. And depending on how long Hamilton has left in the sport or how long he chooses to go on for, who knows where the record could be left? And whilst we, whilst many people were saying when Schumacher reached 91 race wins, many were saying, will that record ever be broken? And lots of people thought it wouldn't. It has to be said, it may be tempting fate again, but if Hamilton leaves the record at 100 plus Grand Prix wins, I think it's safe to say that it may never be broken. I'm willing to say that it, it's probably a good thing if it doesn't get broken, because in terms of uh, an interesting sport to watch, <laughs> That many race wins is indicative of a of a pretty one-sided season. That's perhaps what makes Schumacher's record so impressive was he, when he was, for example, winning for Ferrari. Um, the Ferrari car itself wasn't actually that competitive. It was Schumacher's talent that managed to bring it the best out of it. There's always a funny saying with Ferrari, which is when their when their road cars are good, their F1 cars are drivel. And it's something we're seeing right now. So, I mean, you're absolutely right, Angus, that this was just 
inevitable, right? With a Mercedes dominance this year, he's going to beat it. And as you say, he's going to beat it as well and get to 100 wins. I'm willing to bet that he's going to get to 100 wins simply because we've, we've got a whole nother season like this next year. And he's probably going to get to, what, 90, 96, 97 if he gets a, you know, a royal flush, if you'd like. And that just leads leaves him needing three next year to, to get to the magic 100. And, and to be honest, if I don't think that should be beaten. But I mean, yeah, what a fantastic achievement to equal Schumacher's record, let alone to probably beat it, as we say, is the likely occurrence considering there's five races left in this season. And Hamilton has stated he will continue on for the season after at least and may even go on even further considering he's only 35 years old. We've seen drivers like Raikkonen still be in the sport and still doing a good competitive job when they have the tools to do so. So I think there's no doubt that all of Schumacher's records in terms of championships and races will be smashed. I mean, do we want to see them broken? From From a personal perspective, it's nice to witness it. Uh, I never watched Schumacher race until he came back with Mercedes, which was never the true uh, Michael Schumacher talent. That was more of a sort of Schumacher trying to give it a go, but the car and everyone else saying, you're past your best, I'm afraid, lad. Um, So that was a shame. And I think it's, it's great to see Hamilton doing so well and smashing all these records. But as you say, let's, if we literally dig, dig down and dig deeper, into the actual records of Hamilton. He's only retired six times since 2014, since the start of the hybrid era. And we've spoken previously on differing episodes and indeed series of this podcast about how it can all go badly wrong in terms of luck, i.e. Alonso. Yeah. Uh, he moved from Ferrari, Ferrari got good, moved to McLaren, McLaren got worse, uh, and he never really got the luck to uh, accompany his talent. Many would say the same is with Raikkonen. He was never in a reliable car or a top reliable car for too long until the sort of twilight days of his career. Um, So Hamilton has definitely lucked out in many regards, but he definitely has the talent uh, to accompany that. And it's great to see him doing so well. So will it ever be beaten uh, from somebody else aside from Hamilton? I can't see it because I just can't see a constructor's being so consistent and a driver being so damn lucky as Lewis Hamilton has been. Well, let's talk about the luck, actually, because this this weekend had uh, quite a bit of luck for Hamilton because Bottas's engine decided that it didn't really feel like completing the race. And so it went into, I believe, a internal recovery mode. And so he had to limp back to the pits in first place, which is a bit of a shame, really, because as Bottas retired, so too did his chance for of winning the world championship and it was actually surprised if, if this had happened to Hamilton if it happened the other way around Bottas was in first and Hamilton uh who was in second had had the engine problem we were we we would have had a situation where you'd have had Hamilton who would be on 100 uh, 205 points and Bottas on 186, which means there'd only be 19 points between them, which is, as you say, as uh, which is less than one race win with this person not finishing. But it would be much, much closer. That's the whole point of it. And it's a bit of a shame, actually, that it sort of ended the season like this because we've only got six races left. And now there's this gigantic difference on between Bottas and Hamilton. So Hamilton sort of handed been handed this season win on a on a silver platter, don't you think? 
Almost definitely, yes. Um, I think it was inevitable, really, that Hamilton was going to win uh, this season, not only due to the superiority of Mercedes, but because of the inability of Bottas to bring his A-game like someone like Nico Rosberg did. I think if Rosberg could have carried on, perhaps it's controversial, if Rosberg had have carried on and not retired after winning the championship, we'd have seen a far more competitive uh, duel for the championship um, going forwards. And I don't think Lewis Hamilton would have won all of them, which would have made Schumacher's record even harder to beat uh, going forwards for him. Mm, you see, that's a really good point because I was thinking back to 2016. That's a really good point because... Four years ago is really when we had a nail-biting championship. And it's really depressing as a as a fan to predict so accurately the way it's going to go. And even if Hamilton had this stroke of bad luck and Bottas ended up winning and you had this close points difference between the two drivers... It, we would have still sat here saying, oh, Hamilton's still going to win. But at least it would have been close. That's the point. And when we go back to like Hamilton's last retirements and his last retirements were crashing with Rosberg in Barcelona. And as you say, uh, Angus, rather, his engine deciding to let go. Back in 2016, it shows you how brilliant the Mercedes car is. And that DAS system this weekend was completely well, overpowered. And so the DAS system is when the steering column is is linked to the wheels. And under typical driving conditions, you would have the front wheels pointing ever so slightly towards each other. Now, this trades off straight line speed, but in return, you can go around corners quicker. Now, what the Mercedes mechanics decided to do was basically have an adjustable system so that you could stop the wheels pointing into each other and make them point forwards. But you can't, under FIA regulations, under Formula 1 rules, you can't have an electronic system. So what they made what they made the cars do instead is have a physical manual system whereby Hamilton pulls back on the steering column to make it that make the wheels go straight and pushes it back in again in order to make the wheels point towards each other. And as it turned out this weekend, when it was cold and they had to do had to warm up the tires, was Hamilton and, and some extent Bottas could push in and pull out the steering column to make the wheels turn into each other and then straight on again in order to add more heat to the tires, which just left Verstappen in second with no chance. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Looking back at the restart, um, there was hopes from all of us, I think, that Verstappen would give Hamilton a run for his money, challenge him, potentially overtake him, but get close at least. But uh, as soon as the safety car came in after both Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen had complained sufficiently about how cold their tyres were, um, Hamilton shot off and that was game, set and match to Mercedes once again. I was watching it with my girlfriend again. I was going to say made her watch it. We didn't make it. She wanted to watch it. And at that, when we had that safety car on the, uh, with 10 laps to go, she was like, come on, Verstappen can do it. He can get up close. He can do, pull something out of his ass." I was like, you know, he can't. There's no chance now. But it's a shame. It's a real shame that it is like that. And we'll come to the, I'm sure we'll come on to the Red Bull situation later. But Hamilton is absolutely 
blown everyone else out of the water with his win record. It's going to just go up and he's going to get to the 100. And I hope it doesn't get broken because it's just it's just going to be really sad for the sport, I think, if, if we have another period like this again. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point as well, Tristan. Uh, it's pretty much the only two times in history where there's been one driver who's had such a dominant run has been Schumacher and Hamilton. And they've ended up having vastly more race wins than anyone else in comparison. So, the, so at the moment, you've got them on 91. The next highest is Sebastian Vettel on 57. Um, and then behind that, you've got the likes of Prost and Senna in the, in the sort of 50s and 40s. So, if, yeah, if the record was to be broken, it would take either for a driver to start like 400 odd races or for there to be another ma- major period of dominance. So yeah, I'd say yeah, for the good of the sport and for there to be more competitiveness, you'd have to hope that the record would not be broken. And I, to be honest, I'd say that like a record like 90 races, like admittedly whilst, whilst it is a very high bar, the way that F1 was going at the time, when Schumacher was winning his championships, they were only having like 16 or 17 race seasons. Whilst now the seasons are 20, 21. I mean, I know this year is an exception, but the number of races per season has gone up. Yeah. The chances for victories for drivers like Hamilton are, are there. But now they've reached the peak of like, like, I mean, maybe one, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe soon we'll see 25 race seasons, which completely exhausts the whole Formula 1 paddock. But like, I can't see... I mean, I think that's a big factor about the uh, Hamilton having more race wins is that the, the calendar has ex- expanded quite a bit. But I, I don't know. I just, yeah, I just can't see the record being broken. But then, to be fair, this is the exact same logic that people had when Schumacher set the record, that it would never be broken. But then records are there to be broken. So, I mean, I, I, mean, I wouldn't 100% rule it out, but I just I can't see it being because also i can see hamilton staying around for a bit longer and oh yeah you won't leave yeah yeah like 110 wins which is more than double of what vettel has so well that's even if he leaves at the end of next season because as you say we've got these almost marathon length seasons now with 20 something races that absolutely that's absolutely true because you don't that does mean you need sort of five absolutely dominant years though and that's half a decade to be completely and overwhelmingly dominant is just well it's crazy because when tom you know you say oh, i don't remember schumacher and i don't remember schumacher either in the racing days and actually thinking back to what i do remember properly remember from formula one well i i, I remember the dominance of red bull and then into this ultra dominance of mercedes and it is I, I find it really weird to, to hear my dad talking about Formula One when he was my age and being like, oh, yeah, you know, or, or, or he, yeah, in, in, he would say things like, oh, yeah, you know, some days it was, you know, Benetton winning or other days it was Jordan and, you know, whatever, whoever it was winning at the time. They had this variety. Oh, like what we want is a variety pack of race winners. Like, like we've had on podiums this year. This has been amazing, the amount of people we've had on the podium this year. It would just be nice if the number one bloke happened to be have, have a different name badge on, different team on his overalls. I think the reaction of all of us to Monza uh, and the winner there of Gasly as well as Stroll and Sainz getting on the podium, the sort of ecstasy and the excitement that we all exuded, not only on this podcast, but F1 fans around the world, really testifies to how stagnant and stale the competition at the top of Formula 1 has been over the last few years. Don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of the midfield battle, but that's nothing compared to a battle for 
who wins the Constructors' Championship and who wins the Drivers' Championship. And I think that can also be summarised by the fact that we're also ecstatic to see Daniel Ricciardo finish third uh, during this race. He qualified in sixth place and there was no certainty he would get there, but he's done it. He has finally got to the third place place of the podium and now he's got to or should I say uh, Cyril has got to get that tattoo to um, to make good on his deal that was made long ago between the Aussie and the Frenchman what do we think about that guys we're all waiting in bated breath to see what he gets at the at the uh, podium interview they did ask Ricardo what he thought he would choose for for Cyril bear in mind that Daniel Ricciardo isn't known for his you know, sensibilities and, and calm and serious nature. And he said that he was going to pick something that reminded him of Germany, which is always funny, plastering something about Germany on the, the backside of a Frenchman. And also, you know, coming in third. And I, I, I just think it's wonderful because he, he missed out so much a couple of races back. And... It was just really nice to see that out of Bottas's misery, out of those that sort of fire, came the phoenix of, of Daniel Ricciardo charging and charging his way up to the third place on the podium. So, you know, good on him. And I think the saddest bit afterwards was the only only downside, the only sad bit was they they asked Daniel, hey, you know, why why didn't you drink out your shoe? Because it's traditional for Daniel Ricciardo to take off his shoe on the podium, pour some champagne into it, and uh, drink some, which is really disgusting. Now I think about it, but hey, it's what he does. You know, everyone's everyone's their own. It's just the Australian way. And uh, they said, they said, why didn't you do this? You always do this. And he said, oh no, because I forgot. He said he was he was so ecstatic, and you know, enamored by the situation that he totally forgot. And he just went, oh no, I'm really, I'm really sad now. I forgot all about that. <laughs> like, just his massive smile fell off his face. It just shows you how long it's been since he's actually been on the podium. It just shows how how much of a wilderness he's been in until this last race in terms of podiums. Yeah, it's. I completely agree with you guys. It's brilliant to see Daniel Ricciardo back on the podium. If not, if not for the, the whole tattoo thing, because that's a very funny story. Um, but just for the fact that. Yeah, he's a very popular figure in the uh, in the paddock. Uh, that podium has been coming. Renault did start off the year a bit sluggishly, but then they brought the this is an upgrade package they brought in around about Silverstone, and since then they've been consistently at the top of the midfield. Not just Ricardo. I mean, Esteban Ocon has had a bit of bad luck in the races, such as his uh, terminal engine problem that came about at the Eiffel Grand Prix this weekend, but. Ricardo has been leading the way in terms of where Renault have made progress to. I'm looking at the championship standings here. He's got three fourth place finishes before this podium. So you've got to say that the, the podium was coming. He was just pipped to it by Alex Albon at Mugello, um, being overtaken in the last few laps. Well, I will, there is, there is maybe, I mean, obviously he got on the podium, so the asterisk maybe doesn't, isn't as relevant. We do have to admit that the safety car caused by Lando Norris's um, engine failure definitely helped Ricardo. Without that, his task to get a podium would have been, I think, a lot more difficult because he would have either had to uh, stay out on possibly up to 45 lap old tyres and hold off Sergio Perez, or he would have had to pit uh, just before that and then try and reel in Perez, who, as we know, is a, is a very, very good driver and very difficult to uh, to get past. I mean, obviously, 
it was coming and Ricardo, I think I think Ricardo has had a very good year. There've been lots of drivers who had a very good year in terms of their performances, but Ricardo's been one of those. I feel like he's got the maximum out of the Renault. But still, there, I think we have to admit there was an element of luck. Not to say it wasn't deserved, but there was an element of luck in it. Yeah, there's always an element of luck, though. But as you as you, we should talk about that little section actually with the uh, before the safety car bit when was it Latifi crashed? No, no, no. It was Norris. Norris put. Oh, that was it. Yes, yeah, it, it, Latifi it a, finished. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It was, it was a bit of a. I mean, admittedly, it was it wasn't the safest place for the car, but it was oh. one of those where I've, <laughs> I've I would have expected a virtual safety car to be deployed. They, Carl Norris parked his car next to the barriers and next to a whopping great tractor to get him off quickly, and they're like, "Oh no, looks like we're gonna have to call the safety car to kind of mix up the race a bit." Because at this point, it was Hamilton in the lead. And then eight or nine seconds later, Max Verstappen. Yeah. And then one minute later, it was Ricardo. Like there was <laughs> that was how far back everyone was, and they were like, "Oh no, it looks like we're going to have to bunch them all up." Oh dear. <laughs> to be fair, that's why I enjoy having a safety car over a virtual safety car because virtual safety cars. It just seemed really boring to me, quite artificial, and you don't get the excitement that comes along with that compared to an actual one. So I get what you mean. It was completely needless. It was oh, yeah. the definition of extra, but um, it brought another level of spice to the race, to be fair. It really so. was needed. It just was needed. But So Ricardo was in third, and you had Perez catching up, but Perez was only catching up by... I think it was seven-tenths of a second with ten laps to go, and he was about six and a half seconds behind and so he would have caught up absolutely but the thing is he would have had to overtake i think i worked out the time i remember saying that he's only got about three laps to get past ricardo so i don't think he would have got past in three laps simply because when we looked at for example daniel ricardo trying to get past charles leclerc it took him about four or five laps to do it so the Nürburgring was quite narrow anyway, so I don't think he would have got past. I think Perez could have absolutely caught him up, but it would have been really close, really, really close. So, I don't know. I, I know that Daniel Ricciardo is sort of king of late breaking, breaking as close to the corner as possible and extracting the most out. And it seems like that Renault and also the McLaren, we can't forget the McLaren, their upgrade package as well, has been incredible just to really enhance the, the cars. Most yeah. definitely, yeah. I thought it was very interesting when the uh, Amazon predictor in terms of overtaking, in terms of time and difficulty, it put the time about seven laps when I last saw it, which was like, oh, okay, fair enough. But the difficulty, it put it at about three out of 25. And I thought to myself, this is very, very computerized, artificial, data-driven stuff over who's actually being involved here. Yeah, I've got to admit, those Amazon graphics, I mean, we've we got to bear in mind, these are the same, if we refer back to a podcast we did uh, a few months ago, these are the same Amazon people who thought that Heike Kovalainen and Yalo Trulli were faster than Sebastian Vettel. So I'm not sure I really trust their data. But yeah, I'd say, well, in terms of the difficulty of the overtake, I I would have to, I, I feel like this year I've become Sergio Perez's biggest fan. <laughs> but Because I think that, I, I would have backed him to pull off the overtake. I mean, yeah, you. I mean, seven tenths a lap, being what seven or eight seconds behind with ten laps to go, maybe would have just caught up to him. But mate, you got to bear in mind, bear in mind maybe that Daniel Ricciardo's tire life may have 
seriously I mean I'm not saying he would have hit the cliff but I I I would put bet money on him having been on those tires for so long that eventually they like they wouldn't have been able to maintain the condition that they were in beforehand so yeah I I don't know I'd say I'd say that Perez arguably would have overtaken him but I mean I I guess we'll never know I just I just got to hope that I hope that Perez gets a podium soon he deserves one for being for being he's you got this is a point I think that Martin Brundle made on commentary at the weekend. Hmm. The guy's just been sacked from a team who he's been at for seven years and is, and basically saved. Now it would be easy to go into a sulk and sort of not really reach the levels of performance that he could. You look at Sebastian Vettel, who currently, I mean, the reasons for him being so poor at Ferrari at the moment, I mean, there's many, you could make up many conspiracy theories about it. The fact of the matter is, he is just not performing. You've got to speculate that one of the reasons is because of the way he's been dumped by his team whilst Perez is just going on forget like regardless still churning out top performances every week and I think I've, I've got I think that podium hopefully will come for him at some point in the rest of the year to be fair I'm also dying for a Sergio Perez podium because I'm a huge fanboy but yeah looking at he qualified in ninth and came up to fourth I mean that is a pretty remarkable achievement isn't it for Sure, a racing point car, but when you bear in mind he's in front of, say, drivers like Charles Leclerc, sure, Leclerc's got an inferior car, but is also an excellent driver. Also, when you perceive that he's behind a Red Bull of um, Alex Albon, also behind a Renault, as well as Lando Norris and the McLaren, that's no mean feat at all. Um, No, definitely not. And as I say, it would be a travesty if he doesn't get a seat next year, but I digress. I mean, this is this all comes down to whether or not Perez's Perez's tyres would have held up as well. And actually, bear in mind, after that amount of time, and also running behind another car, it does negatively impact Mercedes-style cars. I think that's what we should call it, Mercedes-style. But that that car doesn't work well behind other cars. So I don't know. I think I'm less I'm less committed to say you would have got past than uh, perhaps you are, Angus. But I really do hope for Perez's sake, especially getting told on your birthday that you're being dumped. It's not great. really isn't great from the Racing Point um, team there. But I think we'll we'll talk about the Racing Point uh, in the next section, I think. Absolutely right. Nico Hülkenberg was told at 11am on Saturday that he would be needed this weekend to race in the Eiffel Grand Prix. Hadn't been in a Formula 1 car since the British Grand Prix, he was able to finish in a mightily impressive 8th place. Wow. What do we have to say to that? Well, so what do I have to say to that? Well, thanks. well Tom, um, I, I was I was digging a little bit deeper than you there. So uh, Nico Hagenberg was relaxing in Cologne preening his hair and sipping on coffee when all of a sudden a call comes in from his chums at Racing Point. So according to sources, uh, Lance Troll had been feeling unwell for about a week and was not in a fit state to get into the F1 car. Although, actually, we'll come to this. If he was feeling unwell for such a long time, isn't it a bit strange that Racing Point hadn't actually contacted Hulkenberg sooner? Um, We'll discuss that after. So on Saturday morning which after heavy rains had cancelled the third practice session on Friday, it was due to host both practice three and qualifying. Hülkenberg got a call to get himself to the Nürburgring pronto. According to Otmar Safnauer, Lance had said, I've got rid of a lot of fluid and I can't get off the toilet long enough to get in the race car. So I really feel for him because that sounds really, really awful, actually. 
um, being in that sort of position. So he was in no fit state to qualify, um, let alone, you know, let alone drive on, on race day either. So having had no practice, as you rightly say, Tom, Hulkenberg managed to qualify in last place, which isn't really surprising given that he had no prior feeling of the car around the track. It was also really cold as well, which doesn't help. But on race day, he managed to finish in eighth place, giving the team double points finish. Ironically, a double points finish from two drivers who won't actually be in the racing point car next year. So I think we should begin by simply asking the question whether or not Hulkenberg has done enough to show that he deserves to to be Hulken back in a car next year. Yeah, it's, qu- it's quite astonishing, really, that Nico Hulkenberg did manage to get points. The fact that, like you said, literally, what, three hours before qualifying or two hours before qualifying, he didn't even know he was going to be driving the car, which was even even more of a last-minute call than it was at Silverstone when he was at least given notice on the Thursday beforehand that he was going to be driving. So to turn up, have no practice, doing, have literally just 20 minutes of running prior to the race, which was just in qualifying. I mean, yeah, like you said, it was probably not surprising. I mean, I don't know. I think I had quite high expectations and was disappointed when he he finished last. But looking back, like, shouldn't have had any expectations because the guy literally jumped in the car having been like driving down the motorway like two hours earlier. So to come from to come from that, qualify last. Okay, maybe disappointing, but expected. Then to come up all the way to eighth in the race, pass. I mean, he passed all the cars that maybe a racing point would be expected to pass. So that you got the Hasses, the Alfa Romeos also the uh, Williams's as well but still to be able to do that and to come through all the sort of it wasn't absolute carnage on Sunday but there was some some stuff going on some retirements etc there was stuff to negotiate and he had to make some passes the fact that he did that and came to eighth I think is brilliant I mean you talk about whether he should get a drive for next season I would say in an ideal world I would love for there to be enough room on the grid and enough seats for there to fit both sort of the the young Ferrari juniors that are coming through um, in F2, but also to fit in Perez and Hülkenberg. I fear that that might not be possible, and I fear that Nico Hülkenberg might be the loser in all that, in the game of musical chairs. Do you not think Perez will be, though? No, because Perez and Hülkenberg are both very good drivers, but Perez has such a, a large amount of funding that that immediately makes him a more attractive prospect, I think. Like, if Red if Red Bull were to choose... Something as simple as, for example, Red Bull, big um, conglomerate, big company, who has their sort of their marketing strategy as well. This may sound cynical, but I don't know much about Red Bull in the in Red Bull's market in Mexico. So they may look at Perez and think he's more marketable, and for that reason, go with him over Hulkenberg. But Hulkenberg does have the now the popularity, though, right? So doesn't that? Yeah, he does. But then Red Bull also wants to win the constructors' championship, so they might. I mean. Whilst some may think, I think Perez is a better driver than Hulkenberg. I think Hulkenberg would still be a very able second driver in the Red Bull seat. But I think that Perez, I don't know, I think they would go for Perez over, if they had a choice between the two and they felt they were equal on driverability, they'd still go for Perez. So who, so who goes in this in this scenario when, when you want someone like Mick Schumacher right, from the Ferrari uh, junior division to, to, yeah. to get into Formula 1? Yeah. Who, who would you, who would you two both eject because I probably say Kimi Raikkonen and I'm sad because I really like Kimi Raikkonen but you know he wasn't even excited to to beat a new record of the most um, 
most number of race starts. His race engineer was like, I know it doesn't mean a lot to you, but I feel like it's very special. And he was just radio silence. Anyway, I'd get rid of him. And I'd probably get rid of Daniel Kvyat to make room. Yeah, Daniel Kvyat out of AlphaTauri allows for Albon to go to AlphaTauri, which would suit Albon. And then, yeah, and then I would have Hulkenberg or Perez, probably Perez, in the racing no yeah. sorry red bull in the red bull and then yeah. sorry and then and then replacing in the out in the alfa romeo i'd probably put hulkenberg yeah i i can see that i mean yeah in an ideal world paris to red bull Albon and gasly at alfa tauri and then what does that leave hulkenberg alongside schumacher at alfa at alfa romeo which basically yeah that basically puts in an experienced driver again with a non-experienced driver and it also means both of them have the opportunity to go to something like ferrari if spaces become available there not that charles leclerc's leaving there anytime soon but Mm -hmm. if there's potentially a lot of vacancies for perez and hulkenberg i agree with angus i think perez should go to red bull and albon should pair up with gasly at alpha tauri but there's also in my view many drivers that haven't really cut the mustard so far We'll talk more about Grosjean, but I don't think him and Magnussen have cut the mustard this year. Both of them could go. I think one of them will, if not both. Kimi Raikkonen, as we say, I think he's lost his mojo and, dare I say, even his desire to be in the sport any more uh, than he was perhaps the year before. We've spoken about Giovinazzi. I don't think he's good enough to be in Formula 1. You definitely make room uh, for him with someone like Mick Schumacher. And I mean, I know Latifi's going to stay there for another season because of the money he brings in and because, well, Williams is, to put it plainly, the worst car at the moment and they can't exactly blame that on uh, the Canadian. You've potentially got there, what, five vacancies there for Perez, Hulkenberg and the junior drivers? Five or six, actually, if we're including, um, if we're including Kvyat's. So yeah, a lot of opportunities, ideally, but then again, if we're talking realistically, you would believe that Giovinazzi would probably stay. Raikkonen, for me, is in the balance. Latifi stays. No guarantee that Magnussen will leave from Haas, maybe not even Grosjean. And then again, with Kvyat, Kvyat's not really done enough to get him sacked. He's not had a performance, or should I say a season, like he did a few seasons ago for Red Bull and when he went back to Toro Rosso. So there's no mandate to get rid of him, but he's not been good enough when you compare him to his sister drivers, as Marco and Christian call them, as well as his teammates. So all of them are vulnerable, I think, yeah. Or that there is possibly one alternative scenario, which is that Red Bull... I say I say be safe, but I don't know if keeping Albon is the safe option. But let's just say they don't, they sort of don't try and upset the apple cart, so to speak, and keep Albon. That would leave Gasly and Kvyat at Alpha Tauri, and then you've got to squeeze Perez and Hulkenberg in somewhere. I could see maybe Hulkenberg. Where would he go? I could, I don't know. Per, I think Perez for me will get a seat, whether that's at Alpha or uh, Red Bull or even Haas. I can see Perez get maybe going to Haas, and I think Grosjean's time is up. To be honest with you, I think he's getting quite old now. He's mid thirties. He's he's been around a while. Magnussen, whilst it does feel like he's been around for ages, he is still relatively young and maybe has more to give than Grosjean. So maybe I don't know Magnussen and Perez at Haas, or and then you might slip in Hulkenberg at Alfa Romeo. But then to be honest, I can also I can see 
if you believe rumours, Raikkonen will be staying at Alfa Romeo for one more year and is going to be like a sort of mentor to Mick Schumacher, like leading him through his first year of Formula One, uh, being sort of being that sort of teammate, sort of mentor influence. But like, I mean, like we said about Raikkonen, he's just, he just, yeah, it's just the way he sort of talk about his team radio mannerisms now. He just doesn't seem to, at various points, his heart just doesn't seem to be in it. I mean, it is really sort of, it's really strange. Ted Kravitz on his notebook, shout out to Ted, made the very good, well, I think it's a very good point that well, Kimi Räikkönen has broken the record for most race starts, but does he really want to be, I mean, he, he said, I mean, he's described it as a hobby in the past, but is it really a good hobby if he's tootling around in the midfield or the, the back of the grid for an hour and a half on a Sunday afternoon? I mean, his race on Sunday, he basically, he drops the back, then he took out George Russell, then he raced around a bit, stuck, stuck behind Sebastian Vettel, but then finished 12th. Like, would he really want to do that for another season? I don't know, unless the Alfa Romeo had a big upturn in performance. I I mean, maybe Raikkonen just loves racing and loves the, the security of being around an F1 weekend, but I don't know how he could want to continue just doing that and might open up a seat, maybe. That's the reality of what the Alfa Romeo team is, though, isn't it? It's not for winning. It's for training and trying to extract the most out of the car. Having young drivers prove themselves in it, a bit like... George Russell is proving himself in the Williams, even though it's not the sister car. Oh, sorry, even though it's technically a junior team to Mercedes, it's you know it's still looked on like that. And I just think it's time for the 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 great drive racing driver that Kimi Räikkönen is to gracefully leave the sport to free up a seat, allow the young drivers in, because he's he's a pretty pointless driver in the sport now. It's very sad to say that as well. It it is sad for someone who has such a long and distinguished career, but he is kind of just filling up a filling a vacancy for no reason at the moment. I mean, it may sound harsh, but I mean, yeah, sort of, yeah. I want to, I want to see, I want to see what you you talk about Alfa Romeo and their sort of their track record with young drivers. Exactly what you think of Charles Leclerc. His first season, spent the year with Alfa Romeo, absolutely aced it, got the Ferrari promotion. Why not do the same with Mick Schumacher alongside like Hulkenberg? I mean, at the end of the day, Kimi Räikkönen is basically like the chocolate-coated Turkish delight that you find in a box of chocolates. You know it's there, and you think, why is it there? It could have been a truffle. It could have even been an orange cream, but it's not. It's a chocolate-coated Turkish delight. Pretty pointless, and I'm sure it's liked by somebody. And I'm sure it's, it's perfectly good. It's a perfectly good chocolate. But it's just not right anymore. It, it's just not... It doesn't just belong to be there. Turkish Delight was once great. It was. It was once one of the most popular sweets in the UK. People went mad over it. But now it's time to leave it out of the chocolate box. Get Kimi Räikkönen out of the metaphorical chocolate box that is the F1 paddock. And bring in something new. Maybe like a Kit Kat, little Kit Kat thing. Or a little nougat, chocolate-covered nougat. Something else. You know, young blood. If you'd like. And carrying on with your Turkish delight metaphor analogy, shall we say, 
it's getting to a point where if Kimi Raikkonen continues to be in the metaphorical chocolate box, he's going to get more and more disliked over time, like the, the, the Turkish delight. So it's best for him that he leaves the box and he leaves while people still think, oh, Kimi Raikkonen, he's a great guy. He was very successful and he knew when to leave. The danger is if he continues to tootle around in a very average Alfa Romeo, which we know will be broadly the same next season, people are going to start being sick of him and want to see him leave more and more. Basically, in a nutshell, he should leave while he's seen as a hero and not stay long enough to see himself become a villain. And talking about quitting while you're ahead and leaving before you are seen as a villain, so ends episode 14 of F1 in Review. Thank you very much, dear listener, for tuning in once again. Today we've spoken about Lewis Hamilton. He has equaled Michael Schumacher's race win record. He's got five races left of this season. He looks set at the moment to win the Drivers' Championship and is going to continue on for next season at least. Is it possible that Lewis Hamilton will smash all of Michael Schumacher's records in the future? I guess only time will tell with that one. And secondly, we talked about Daniel Ricciardo, a man who qualified in sixth place and finished in third and therefore has won the tattoo bet with Cyril. It'll be very interesting to see what the Renault team principal does, what Inky chooses, what he chooses to have and where indeed he has this piece of artwork. And thirdly, we talked about Nico Hulkenberg, or Hulkenback, should I say. He was told at 11am on Saturday that he was needed after Lance Stroll was too poorly to race and indeed qualify. He had no experience of that race, the Nürburgring, until Saturday. Uh, qualified in 20th and last place, as expected, but was able to pull this Racing Point car all the way up to 8th place. What does this mean for his future and indeed Perez's as well? We talked about we talked about by extension. Where will they go? Red Bull is an option, Alfa Romeo, Haas as well. Once again, only time will tell. And while I can't say to you right now that I promise we'll be talking about races or the aftermath of them next week, you'll be happy to know that Liv Perry will be returning alongside Tristan and Angus to talk about all the latest Formula One news going forwards. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Oh, and by the way, guys, so I just had a look at the standings. And if you take just Hamilton's points this year, so he's got 230. And Red Bull combined have got 211. <laughs> so technically, Hamilton is winning the Constructors' Championship. All I'm saying is it wouldn't have happened under Sergio. <laughs> <laughs>